Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Oops, I kicked that off. Hey, no, I tell you, hi, nice to, nice to. I guess, I guess we sorted that on the phone. Now we're meeting face. Yeah, yeah. Now I see you. Yes. <laughs> uh, wonderful, Joe. Can we? Where, where are you, Joe? You're all blurry. Uh, oh, man. Oh, you know why? Because I put my. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so that so that they can't see me. That's right. My nose. <laughs> nice to meet you, Joe. How are you? Nice. Ah, fantastic. Um, well, yeah, let's let's jump in, man. I'm glad to glad to have you. Uh, I, I um, shouldn't we acquaint the the uh, no listeners no. with <laughs> no no we never do that. Um, it's it's oh, a constant. They, we they kind of like to know who we're talking to. No, nobody listens without. There's it's impossible to listen without knowing who we're talking to. I was going to build up to it. Oh. We rehearse the hell out of this act. Actually, it's all <laughs> I feel like this is all part of the, the act. That's right. That's right. It is. It is uh, exactly. This is the movies that made me with your hosts Josh Olson and Joe Dante. I watched the original Staircase documentary when it aired. Oh my God, when is it? Like early, early oddies, 2008, something like that. And there's a follow-up. Yeah, there's a follow-up, and there's another follow-up. And then I hear that uh, dramatic miniseries based on it. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, haven't we seen enough of this thing? And then I, I heard that uh, our guest, Antonio Campos, was going to be uh, kind of creating it and uh, the, the, the force behind it. I thought, well, okay. I mean, um, Antonio's giving us movies like uh, after school, I was about to say sort of wonderful, but these are grim and depressing and amazing films <laughs> like uh, After School and uh, The Devil All the Time. Um, uh, and I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll give it a shot, but Jesus Christ, who wants to see this again? And I'm four minutes into the first episode, and I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can't take 10, 15 minutes in, I'm like, sort of, yeah, all right, fine. And and now I'm legitimately like, hey, he's coming on our show. Can 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 you give us the rest of the episode so I can <laughs> binge them, please? Because yeah. yeah. um, it's really interesting. And apologies, we're only going to spend a minute or two talking about what you do because that's not why we do this. And I'm sure you talk about it all over the place. But what what was it that made you go? Because it turns out you were right. Um, there's there's more to be done here. This is worth adapting. Um, you know, uh, it started when I was in, it was like 14 years ago, it was 2008 when I saw the documentary for the first time and it was sent to me to consider adapting into a feature. And, um, and I just had the sense that there was, you know, I, I just liked the idea of this sort of maze of a character at the center of a maze of a story. And, and it felt like a, 
it felt he felt like just like the perfect person for a true crime uh at that time film and now a series because he's so impossible to kind of figure out i, I felt like i'd watched eight hours of him in that doc and i still didn't know who this guy quite who this guy was and um and i also knew that you know there was there was more to the story than what was in the documentary and there was also sort of the the idea of incorporating the making of a documentary into yeah. into it because it's so much of it is you know a, so much of a trial is about storytelling and then you know and then there's a sort of ne next layer layer of storytelling which is how do the documentarians tell that story and then you know and then how do we then translate that and so it's just sort of these endless layers of people telling stories and each time sort of using the the search for the truth is sort of their 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 sort of beacon but really kind of telling their version of it and sort of you know each time it feels like you're 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 you might be getting a little further away from the truth in a way because you're hearing each side has an agenda each side has a, a perspective that they're trying to to uh imbue their story with yeah i mean it's it's uh and that too but by just the simple act of um you know and it should have occurred to me immediately but you get so lost and immersed in a documentary you almost forget the cameras are there but yeah that is of course the story we don't see the documentary is the story of the documentary being made which is really uh interesting stuff but um yeah no it's 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 uh i don't know what's wrong with me i want to say it's delightful i keep wanting to say all these sort of happy it's not delightful well, but it's, it's well, true no that's like saying rashomon is delightful you <laughs> yeah, <know>? exactly <laughs> well, it's just about a guy who may or may not have beaten his wife to death in the yeah uh, I mean, it, his family goes through delightful. It's charming. Well, what, was, what was kind of, you know, I think one of the things that was interesting about the documentary was that there was this kind of gallows humor that kind of ran through the whole thing. And it was kind of the way that they, I think, dealt with just the overwhelming um, day to day of it all and just trying to get through. There was humor that came sort of peeked through some of the darkness and and the show tries to capture that as well and um and uh yeah you know i i, I think that you know as the, the story is progressing away from the trial the sort of there's a lot of a lot of stuff um you know again it's still it's just it's inspired by true events but we've sort of used the stuff that we knew to kind of build a drama around aspects yeah. of the story that you don't know yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's terrific, um, and highly recommended. If you're not listening, if you're not watching it, um, do check it out. But uh, but that's that's not why we're here. Um, I didn't tell you. I never tell Joe what we're going to talk about. Joe likes to come. Oh yeah, cold. yeah. I think yeah, Joe yeah. likes to come in cold. I just do it. And he never complains. So, well, um, I can always click out. <laughs> uh, Joe Antonio's a film noir guy. Oh. Mm -hmm. and uh wanted to talk to us about some of his favorite films noir great which uh a subject near and dear to both of our hearts uh he's also um can i out you antonio tell i'll, I'll do it and then you can tell me to sure. cut this he's actually one of those people uh we have a couple episodes like this we can't recommend to other guests and now you go on that list he actually took the last few days and rewatched all these movies he actually did a bunch of homework which is amazing and we call that due diligence but yeah. if we if we reached out to people and said by the way you're going to need to watch 10 movies again and then you'd be like <laughs> but uh, no it's an excuse to watch to, re it's a, well, excuse exactly. to revisit it so the, the whole so so when you know josh when i when this was presented to me and i talked to josh 
I always feel like there's all this pressure. Like, what do you choose? Because there's so much, obviously, that you could, you know, go back to and you want to highlight because you also want to shine a light on things that people about, don't know about. And, um, and I, you know, film noir has been this, this the, the, the genre that keeps coming back into my life. And I kind of learned about very early on through a documentary called the, uh, the Rifle, the Typewriter, and the Movie oh, Camera. Sure, the Sam, Sam Fuller yeah, 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 yeah. documentary. That's wonderful. And, uh, and, and, I, and I remember being really struck by Sam Fuller and the character of Sam Fuller and then how all these other directors talked about him. So I, saw, I sort of learned about noir through that, and I learned about noir through um, Scorsese's uh, documentary about American cinema and his section about noir movies. And I just, I remember sort of writing down all these names and not knowing where to find them because it wasn't so easy at the time. I remember Raw Deal, T-Men. Okay, I got to find these. Anthony Mann, I got I to find stuff by this person. And then one summer, 2006, um, I saw the film forum calendar and I had the B-Noir retrospective. And I started seeing Anthony Mann, Rod Deal, T-Man. Like, okay, I know these titles. And, uh, and there were all these double bills, which I loved to go to. At the time, I, could, I, I didn't have two kids. And I could just work <laughs> double bills all day. And, um, and so I started going. And I couldn't stop. And I've seen two, two of these movies every day. And so, Josh, when you brought it up, I started, okay, well, I'm going to go back. And I'm going to look at that program. And I looked at that program. And I, and I highlighted 10 movies. And so I kind of relived a little bit of that experience in my, in my office here and watched, just kind of like watched them back to back um, and try to get my wife to care. Oh, here's, here's a question. Over, over how did you just literally take, you know, 12, 15, 20 hours and just watch them all the way through? No, I had to do it because I had, I had to, sort of, I, like I literally was doing whatever I could. I was like my iPhone on the way to work. I was, I was like anywhere I could do it, I was doing it. And then, it was great. I mean, it's, it was great to, to go back and um, to, to feel, to, to sort of like, to feel that thing I felt when I saw those movies in the theater for the first time mm. and feel like I was seeing something um, new, though it's very old, you know? Um, right. And an attitude and an atmosphere uh, that, uh, you know, it's so specific. I mean, we, we all love noir and we, 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 I feel like we all do noir in our work and, uh, but to see that place of where it started and that feel of it and just, it, there's nothing quite like it. And there's nothing quite like yeah. that black and white noir. Um, yeah. you know, I mean, like I, one of the, the only, there was only one film on my list, house of bamboo by Sam Fuller that was color, which is like stunning. Yeah. It's like Technicolor, isn't it, Joe? Cinemascope. Cinemascope, yeah. yeah. But it doesn't have it doesn't it doesn't feel quite like pickup on South Street or the Naked Face yeah. or something. You know, yeah. it's got it's got. I mean, it's his the way he moves the camera in that film is beautiful, and some of his like it's the, the 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 set pieces are so memorable. Like you know, the guy getting shot in the in the in the uh, by uh, Robert Ryan in the uh, in the hot tub. Um, or the final shootout on the top of that building. But, um, but it was really what I, what I really enjoyed going back to, honestly, I think more than anything was, was seeing John Alden and Anthony Mann working together 
in those movies and uh and and uh and the reign of terror was one that i was like oh man this movie this movie should be well, yeah let's let's kind of let's 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 break them down so specifically sure a few I'm going on a rant. I'm sorry. I, no, no, no. It's great, but I want I want to well, get the, into the, the, the Rain of Terror is a, is, a, is a little tricky because it's it's not a, it's not a, an urban noir. It's a period yeah. picture, and yeah. uh, and it's a it's a great period picture made for a dollar ninety eight on borrowed sets. <laughs> um, but it's uh, it's it's long been one of my favorite movies. Uh, yeah, and uh, when, when when Richard Basehart, who plays Robespierre, keeps saying, "Don't call me Max," uh, it's it's <laughs> it's just heaven. <laughs> yeah, exactly. he likes hot biscuits like yeah i mean know. i want to jump into that one a little bit even though it's like it, it, it's uh it's it's probably exactly the wrong movie to start with just because it is so far from the obvious but yeah it, it also it recently came out finally it was one of those movies you had to search in fact i think i had the best version i had of it for a long time was a, and it was cut yeah it was like a bootleg dvd yeah. that joe had given me um uh not that joe engages in any kind of piracy folks um, but there's there's now a box set that's got it on Blu-ray, and it was amazing to look at it. But yeah, it, it made for a dime, and the the just sheer hubris of doing a period piece with no money that that plays. It does not feel. I mean, I'm constantly marveling at the technique in that film that they use to sort of cover up the fact that probably they're not wearing pants half the time, let alone. <laughs> well, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of rear projections. Uh, yeah, so amazing rear projections. Brilliant use of rear projections. Where were the, because I was trying to figure this out and I was going through Wikipedia to see where did they shoot the exteriors? I think they shot them, they shot them at, at this little tiny studio that um, Eagle Lion was renting on Santa Monica, Santa Monica Boulevard. Oh, wow. And when William Cameron Menzies is, is, is designing the movie, um, he never built anything that beyond the frame. It was everything like every, everything was built to fit the frame. And you, if you can't move the camera over here, you can't move it over here because you'll see bad things. But if you do it right here, it's perfect. And uh, it, it's filled with really great photography. And, um, and, and it's a funny movie. I mean, it's, it's, it's very witty. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Well, um, I one of those period movies too, one of the, where no one tries to do an accent. No yeah. one, yeah. It's like there. I mean, that's and so it's funny you said. Well, it's not. It isn't an urban noir, but it was funny to watch it right after watching T Men and feeling like, oh wait, I think I just saw this scene in T Men, <laughs> but it's happening with you know with uh, with with Robespierre. You know, I, it's just like there's there the beats were very similar and the way that that they were shooting. But I think that I just felt like Alton was kind of like. I mean, he was just it, it, the the level of craftsmanship in that movie, and the way the way that they were shooting these. I, like you said, I didn't feel like there was any corner cut. It just felt like the movie exactly was what it was supposed to be. Yeah, I mean that. that yes, you put it perfectly because it, it doesn't feel like they're trying to work around anything. Yeah, every every choice feels. You, do you remember the moment? This this moment really stuck with me. It kind of got me giddy because I was like, oh, this is just like. Just brilliant editing, brilliant acting. Just a very clever, simple sequence where the guy's trying to open the door, and he's he's gotten he's gotten away from Robespierre by because uh, this woman has come in pretending to be Duval's wife, and he's pretending to be Duval, and and uh, she's managed to sneak him out. 
but the real Duvall's wife's on the other side of the gate and she wants to go see Robespierre. <laughs> and this guy has got this big set of keys and he just can't undo the lock. And you're just waiting and you see Robespierre kind of coming up the stairs and then they finally gets out. It was just, it was just, I was on the edge of my seat. I was, <laughs> like, this is great. Well, any, any time we can steer people toward pictures that they haven't seen and probably nobody really not very many people have, have seen this picture but it is available yeah. on uh it is, it's on amazon it's, too it's uh well the the, ver the version on the um on the uh, blu-ray which is on with like four or five other pictures yep. from kit, kit parker i think uh is 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 the one to see yeah i mean it's and and uh it, it was so nice to finally see it you know looking good um because just sort of so, so many of the ways we watch movies you're sort of you're watching a suggestion of what the movie is and kind of filling it in yourself but my well, particularly with film noir because so many of them are in public domain yeah uh, so many of them are made for small studios that have gone out of business and uh and so people were used to seeing scarlet street for instance in these very terrible dupes which occasionally by the way pop up on tcm you know um if, if a movie's in the public domain there somebody has to spend the money to to do a, a good version of it and then you would think that most everybody else would say, well, if I'm going to pirate a movie, I'll pirate this version. But no, they don't. They, they keep running the same crappy cheap dupes that they that they got, you know, over the transom. Yeah. There was a, the uh, one of the places where I would be able to find hard to find movies was a place called Kim's Video. Yes, uh, in New York. Sure. Yeah, legendary. St. Mark's. And uh, it was right around the corner from where I lived and I would go there all the time. But they got into a lot of trouble because Kim's video um, would start ripping movies off TCM. So there was all these <laughs> movies that you couldn't find. And so, but they had everything, but they had everything because they were stealing movies. They were just like, they would just look at the, you know, the TV guide and go, okay, we're going to rip off, we're going to rip Reign of Terror this week. And then they have it in their, in their collection to rent and to sell. Um, but I, for a long didn't, time, didn't that was the they, I feel like, didn't they do the thing? I know that um, there's a video store here in, in LA that, that still in business. So I don't want to get them in trouble through, but they, um, I feel like they offered it. You could rent those for free if you rented something else. Am I not correct? Or were they actually? Oh, at Kim's? No, they were. They were, they were actually, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, they were making money on <laughs> RIP anyway. They were, yeah. they were good people at a great place. Well, my first all region Blu-ray player at Kim's actually <laughs> flew it back to LA. <laughs> what was the deal with Eagle Lion films? I feel like you guys might have some, some insight into Eagle Lion films. Well, Eagle Lion was PRC uh, for a while, which is a very, very low budget, like sub monogram company uh, that made things really cheaply. And then they made Detour, you know, uh, I mean, they did make some, Edgar Romer worked there a lot. Um, but then it became, uh, with a, a little bit of infusion of money, I think maybe some of it from J. Arthur Rank, uh, it became Eagle Lion, which was, you know, a, a, a much classier outfit, although still playing second features and, you know, grindhouses and, you know, they didn't really get the, the respect that they deserved. Uh, although they were distributing, I think, a bunch of British pictures that played art houses. Hmm. Yeah, so that, that that the Elmer connection makes sense. I have no idea, um, but yeah, but why? And then and then yeah, you can also do an entire episode. It, I, I, it is clearly film noir. Why is it film noir? <laughs> uh, why is Rain of Terror film noir? Yeah, no, I mean it is. You know, it's um, uh, but it it 
let's he say I, I, many of the yeah i mean that's a good question why, why is well why because is, film noir doesn't have to just take place in you know after 1946 I mean, right. you, you can you can do a film noir set anytime no sure uh, but there's just there's something about the kind of the 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 moral milieu that um had not not to mention the black and white you, you have to have something it's like if it had been in color and had been made for lots of money well it, it, i wonder it, if we that version of it wouldn't have worked in color because it was yeah. designed to be in black and white no but you know yeah, what they, they, you couldn't get away with what you got away with right yeah right how about uh, this and, and and when they shoot richard basehart in the mouth uh, oh my that's, god that's the scene they oh always cut god. out that's that's oh the piece my... that was cut out all the, of all the, all the that, I was shocking. <laughs> was There's shocking. a moment where he leans in and right before the cut and you feel like you've just seen the, like his teeth shattered in his mouth. But it goes by so fast that you don't know. You just feel like you got that impression of something horrific, which is again, sort of the genius of uh, low budget filmmaking. But you could use John Alton to, to, to uh, segue into the, uh, the more modern. Um, or the noirs, you know. Yeah. But I, I think, but I think that it, the thing that, but that's why it was so interesting is watching Raw Deal Teeman and then, and then Reign of Terror and Raw Deal Teeman being sort of, sort of classic noir, and what you think of a noir, an urban setting, and the time period. Um, but the, but but it's the attitude, it's the atmosphere, it's the, it's the tone, it's the sort of outlook on life, it's the antihero, it's like the, all that stuff. It's just. It, like you said, Joe, it's like it doesn't matter when it is or where it is, um, but as long as it kind of has those elements and it does play with light and shadow and does live in that gray. And that's what I think I think of all is drawn to these movies is that is the moral ambiguity of things. You know, I, mm -hmm. I just dig it. I just like, I'm like, oh, man, like there's no good guy in this thing and everybody's kind of problematic and you're just kind of but you you kind of go along for the ride and um, and you always kind of know things aren't going to work out. <laughs> going to work out. And then they, you know, and then there's a nice pleasant surprise, like when they do. Um, but, uh, but, but it's that, it's that you get invested despite that too. And it's like the hero in, uh, in detour says fate sticks out its leg and trips you. <laughs> you know, and and that's and that's pretty much what happens to that almost the, that everybody. That might be the noiriest line of dialogue ever. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. He's a really noir character. Yes. Um, yes. But uh, but you know the the there there are sort there are sort of two two noirs. One is the morally ambiguous, uh, can't tell who's the good guy, who's the bad guy version, and then there's the police procedural version, which right. uh, started with "He Walked by Night," which is the uh, yeah. which is John Alden and 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 was became the template for Dragnet because uh, Jack Webb is in the picture and obviously picked up a lot of interesting right. tidbits uh, from that picture. That, that, that film, I, that film and Teeman has some of that too, sort of like how rigidly procedural it is. It's yeah. almost like it's just really kind of walking you through the process. And I love that because I love procedure. Like I love, like I love like procedural now I think has a different connotation but really what's when you really see the procedure of anything like play out the way it does and you get to live it it's really engaging well when, that, when yeah. t man is you know it shows you how the treasury agents work you oh, know, it's, it's about counterfeiting and usually these pictures are narrated by reed hadley or or, or somebody like that you know uh, and and they're they're very um 
very realistic for the period. I mean, they're 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 pseudo documentary in the way they present uh, the 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 works of the law. Uh, but then when it comes to the uh, the machinations of the, of the villains, they're they're expressionistic. Right, right, right. And what was the because T Man has it, it? It was funny to that 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 device of um, you know a nondescript sort of very official sounding voice, sort of bringing you into the world and setting up the setting up the story, popped up a few times and. Uh, it's in House of Bamboo too. Kind of just sets everything up and then kind of goes away. But what was the first movie to do that? Like, it would. Can you, do you guys know what the first movie was that kind of used that device? Hmm. Well, there there was a series of uh, pictures made by a guy named Louis de Rochemont at, at Fox that were sort of pseudo documentary pictures, like the house on Forty Fifth Street. I can't remember huh. what's they were a spy. There were spy movies about espionage, and they almost always had a narrator. And they needed to because there were so many plot points and so many things that were going on that the audience was not privy to if they didn't right, get right, hip to right, it. Right, 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 uh, and that's right. and that sort of became a style. And that's that's and it became a style on television. It was very big on television narration. I mean, when when, when William Conrad narrated *The Fugitive*, it was just like it's a it's a noir, you know, because right, you hear right, this guy's right, voice right. and he knows everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's um, it's a trope, I guess you'd call it. Well, we use it. I mean, I in my my movie, The Devil All the Time, which is very much a noir in a lot of ways, sort of an intersection between noir and Southern Gothic. We we use the um, the voice of the author of the book as our as our narrator, and a lot of people would have they'd be like, well, who is he? Who is he in the story? I was like, like he's—is he the kid growing? I was like, he's not. This isn't the Wonder Years. It's yeah. a guy who knows everything, and he's t- he's taking you through the world. And his voice is almost like a, you know, we looked at it like a, another instrument in the orchestra of the, you know, the 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 score. It was just, mm-hmm. it, it, it was it was it was setting a tone. Um, and then well, also, I mean, Pollock is such a vivid and distinct. I mean, that voice. Yeah, you know, that was the thing is you couldn't, yeah. it, it put you in a place. It just like immediately yeah. you heard that voice and you were there. And it was also another way of just injecting humor because he had a point of view. And, um, you know, and, and that was, that was, and then, you know, and, and one of my favorite uses of voiceover is Barry Lyndon. And Barry Lyndon yeah. really has that kind of, he's, he's, he's commenting on things. He sees the absurdity of it all um, from his, from his distance, from his from his vantage mm. point, and so there. I, and then I think you know, and then obviously, killing wasn't on the list, but the killing uses that voice in a very clever way. Yeah. You know, and probably in one of the most clever ways in that in that genre. I think it's interesting too because I, I it took me forever to stop being the world's worst noir purist because I there is this tiny voice in the back of my head going, "Make them stop talking about procedurals." <laughs> I, 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 it's, 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 uh, it's such a, I've come to love over time, the fact that it encompasses so much, but, you know, to me, it was like in, in sort of my early days of, of falling into it, it was like, it's, it's, it's a, it's a weak dude and a no good dame and it all goes to hell. That's it. You can't, you can't, it's gotta be, it's gotta be, and if there are cops, they're bad. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, well, let's let's um uh, yeah let's hop into another one. Um, 
Well, I, the, the other one that I, I think, you know, the, the, uh, the other one that was really, really great to revisit that I hadn't seen, but I remembered so many shots from, and I distinctly remembered Richard, Richard Widmark's performance was Kiss of Death, mm. the Henry Hathaway movie from 1947. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think, I mean, I think that uh, Richard Widmark in that movie had to be a, a, some sort of model for a reference for the Joker, just because he, he, his whole, his whole attitude and the way he smiles and everything just there's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it, it, it's, it's so memorable and it feels like that somehow permeated the culture and kind of, I don't know, ended up being the Joker, but but um, it's such a memorable part. I mean, it's his, and I didn't realize that's his, that's his first yeah. role. Yeah. Made him. Oh, I have to, I have to, it would be remiss. She'd be looking down on me or up and, and cursing my name. Uh, my grandmother, Vernetta Olson, that was one of her favorite movies of all time. And she loved Richard Mark in everything she saw him in because of that movie, which uh, she, uh, his big scene is he pushes a little old lady down the stairs in a wheelchair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's my grandmother. Yeah. And laugh. While he laughs. Yeah. Her son isn't there. <laughs> Son's not here. You're lying to me. And then he, he ties her up and pushes her down the stairs. Ah, ah. That scene is so shocking still. Yeah. But, but you know the shot? I mean, I think that, that movie... Uh, Oh, no, no, there's another movie, but that movie is one of the one of the sort of most memorable, um, most memorably shot, I think, of the movies that I rewatched. Um, that wasn't a John Alton movie, but not just for the lighting, but really the composition. There are shots in that movie that where you're just like, I don't know what I'm looking at right now. It's just like a curtain, and there's like a sliver down the center of the frame, and then you realize that. Richard Woodmark's eyes at the very bottom of the frame, and he's looking right at Victor Mature, and uh, and and then he steps up, and then he starts moving towards the the lens, and all of a sudden he goes into this beautiful close up, and he's he's sort of sandwiched between these two other goons, and and I think it's still, I think it's one of the I think it's one of my favorite shots in the in film history. I think it's just a beautiful, unsettling. Um, single shot that develops from something that you don't understand. It's something that really unsettles you. Um, and I think a lot of that is just, it's just, it's sort of confidence in the frame and, and, and truly, truly cinematic storytelling, you know, letting a frame sort of. And it's also, it's a, it's a commitment to, um, I mean, you, you are sort of unsettled and unbalanced throughout that through most of these, um, if they're good at, and, uh, um, that takes a certain amount of commitment from a filmmaker to go, I'm going to make the audience feel weird and bad for 90 yeah. minutes. <laughs> yeah. And I yeah. get to make a living doing it somehow. Yeah. Yeah. You ever see the remake? I'm actually a. With Nick Cage? One of the, one of the fans of the remake. Yes. I mean, it's good? not the original. It doesn't hold the candle, but. Yeah. I, I, I thought about seeing that. Um, but I, I haven't, I may, maybe I saw it on TV a long time ago, but I I have no recollection of it. It's it's pretty fun. It's pretty fun. Joe's Joe's staying silent over there. How dare you? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, cool, cool. Let's uh, let's let's do another one, Antonio. Uh, well, I mean, the other one, the other film that 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 um, 
this this is the film that I I can't I I I talk about whenever anyone asks me to talk about or do a list and, and highlight movies that people haven't seen that I think they should see. I always bring up Murder by Contract. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. I think that movie is so ahead of its time, and it's it and and it's like, um, it's minimalism. I mean, it's just it's a very very simple restrained movie, but everything is so um uh you know um there's just a, there, there's a there's there's a, there's an economy of, of of filmmaking there where you don't again it's like it doesn't feel like you're it, nothing feels cheap it just feels exactly what it should be and it's it's you're, you're telling so much with with very minimal sets and and simple scenes but just between people uh three people in a room or two people in a room or even just vince edwards by himself in a room preparing for his next hit. Um, but I think that the thing that strikes me about that movie is its sense of humor it feels very contemporary. Mm. You know? It feels like it, 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 it's, it's, you know, there's something that the, there's, there, these movies all have kind of like little, little flourishes, but this movie to me feels like it's just some of the smartest writing. Um, I don't know if you guys remember that movie very. Oh well. yeah, it's a it's a little like another Hitman movie, um, Last, Last of Silence. Silence. Yeah, Last of Silence, which which if you haven't seen, you you really have to put on your list because it's a uh, it's a it's a New York picture oh, uh, yeah. made by a guy named Alan Barron who couldn't who was supposed to have Peter Falk play the lead and then he crapped out and Barron had to play the part himself, and um, and he's 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 perfect for the movie although he's not he's very taciturn he's not much of an actor but uh but it also features a guy named larry tucker who is the fat guy from um from shot corridor All right. uh, okay. and his is and became a producer it was a paul paul Mazursky's producing partner uh and he's just memorable in this picture and it's and it's it's all shot like through van, you know vans going down the street and nobody knowing that there's film there uh and it's in black and white and um and for some reason, it got picked up by Universal, uh, and it, so it, it got a lot of second feature bookings. But it's just it's such an indie, um, yeah. and it's really it's uh, one of Scorsese's favorites. Well, yeah, and Criterion finally, yeah, Criterion, Criterion. is coming out, which is great. But but yeah, but Murder My Contract is also um, that's what I was just thinking. It's it is a it's a procedural as well in its own way. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's you yeah, sure, the procedure of how to kill somebody. Yeah, doing his job. <laughs> The details of that, and uh, well, that's that's the other thing that I found sort of, which was great to sort of, um, I, that it's something I think that that's that that really is is a part of the way that I I approach filmmaking. It's just there's a kind of patience and letting things kind of unfold the way that not necessarily just in one shot, but like the scenes can kind of breathe. And I feel like you know, with these noir as these sort of low budget, you kind of have to you have to make the most out of what you have. And so you look to how to make this scene the most interesting scene it can be, and whether it's through performance or the way that you're shooting it. And I feel like, you know, there's so much of that movie is not necessarily the plot. It's just kind of watching this guy and understanding his philosophy and seeing, um, and just sort of getting to know him uh, that makes it interesting. Yeah. I don't know if you guys remember, one of my favorite scenes to, to reference is, uh, is uh and i was trying to sort of i was trying to do a version of it but i never quite gets to screen um 
the scene when the the, uh, the bus boy comes in, the guy delivering the uh, the the room service, the room service mm-hmm. guy, and there's lipstick on the uh, on the coffee cup, and he and he dresses him down. Yeah. <laughs> well, there are ethics after all. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't. It has been a while. I can't remember which. Is it? Is it New York or L.A.? Murder by contract. Is it? I think it's L.A. LA. Yeah. LA. I mean, one of the things too I love about so many of those films is, I think it's because of their budgets to some extent. They had to shoot a lot of like real exteriors, and it is always so fun. Uh, whether or not it's a city you know, like like an L.A. or a place you've never been, even um, it's so fun to take those tours. Well, I mean, you know, I get to get to see the Bradbury building and, you know, in so many of those movies and, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of them set in San Francisco uh, and you get a, you you get a real tour, but uh, one of the big, one of the big uh, draws for a lot of the uh, pictures is is to see places like Angel's Flight uh, where pictures were actually, you know, people would shoot there. And uh, there's a, there's a whole bunch of pictures where, um, part of the plot is where 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 people are hiding out in houses right next to Angel Flight, which yeah, of course none of, none of which exists anymore. Uh, but it's 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 has, it has historical resonance that that sort of adds to the whole ambience. Well, Murder yeah. by Contract is one of those nice noirs. It's uh, that's interesting because it does, there's not a lot of shadow. It's it's mostly set in yeah. sort of like harsh sunlight, and sort of a, a, a LA just kind of looks like this really unpleasant sort of industrial wasteland bit and uh and that that that, that was that was interesting to kind of uh, remember that, that that like and again to see sort of next to films that are so that are playing so starkly with those that 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 um light and shadow yeah uh, that this just like everything is seen people sort of are sort of baking under the sun no, absolutely. And, and yeah, and, and, and there's this kind of, yeah, it sort of makes it sleazier somehow in a way that, uh, you know, if it was really dark and shadowy, you would not quite pick yeah, up on the I, awfulness of it all. Yeah. I love, I love, I mean, that's also the other thing about those movies. It's so kind of, I mean, one of the things that I, um, one of my favorite writers is a guy named George Simonon. He's a Belgian writer. Yep. Um, known for his Magritte novels, his Inspector Magritte, but I, I love his hard novels. The, the ones that are just like these kind of dark character studies. And I think so, I mean, so much of, so much of his writings about those, these characters that are sort of living very kind of middle of the road, safe lives who all of a sudden one day decide they're going to go down this alleyway and they're going to do this. And then it just kind of spirals out of control. And I think that so much of these, what's so great about these noirs is just that sort of like, that sort of, um, that aspect of it where you feel like you're kind of going to the seedy side of town and you're seeing these 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 yeah. spaces and it feels you know i know that like you know obviously it's a it, everything is a it, everything in those movies is obviously it's there's a limit to how much they can show but the 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 feeling of those spaces feel like what they might have felt like and um the seediness and, and, and even, I mean, those, they just do such a great job of sort of suggesting things without showing them explicitly. Yeah. Like even, even kiss of death has a great scene where Widmark uh, is taking, um, taking Victor mature out on the night of the town uh, after he's, you know, gotten out of prison and 
they go to this one spot that's just like this big old house with a bodyguard in the front and uh and Widmark knows the password or whatever and they get in and um and 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 uh and Victor Mature says uh you know what is this what's that funny smell what's that smell and he's like the perfume and then they go they go down a hallway and you know they're in a brothel but they don't say anything and you just feel like oh this is a sketchy this yeah. is a sketchy place and it must you kind of must smell just like just you feel like the the moldy carpet and you smell it and that's all you need and you don't need to see the room you don't need to see anything but you know what that place feels like yeah yeah that's what um you're reminding me of uh damn it joe i saw this in the film noir fest a thousand years ago i don't remember anything about the movie because it was, it was set and shot um it was a film noir set in hawaii and they went places in hawaii that like i guess if you're not from there you don't even know exist but like the dark seamy urban underbelly of hawaii in this film noir That's right and it was just amazing i mean i think i was just so taken by the locations i don't remember anything else about it but but uh, that's that's kind of one of the things I love is taking these tours, you know. <laughs> I think it was a Republic picture with Wendell Corey, but I can't remember the name. Uh, that that's okay. <laughs> Wendell Corey sounds right. <laughs> I knew you'd have something for me. But uh, yeah, that's that's the greatest thing. Or you know the um, the one the one I'm still I, I I wish they'd come out. There's a nice French Blu-ray of it, the Joseph Losey remake of M. Which is oh, actually which is, oh, which is genuinely really good. great movie. It's really good. And talk about a great. Uh, portrait of LA. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's more it, Bradbury building than you've ever seen in anything. So, and, and it's got a great cast. So, I mean, every yeah. character actor in town is on that type of thing. Yeah. Um, that one's worth tracking down. But that sounds great. I'm sure. Yeah. It's it was worth that, that was out of circulation for years because of a rights problem. But I think well, I it's still it's, sort of, yeah, there's only a French Blu ray. It's and it came out a couple of years ago and I keep waiting for somebody else to do something with it. It's out on it. Cheesy Flicks. I don't even know what that is. But it's Cheesy Flex is a place you can go to buy movies that are a little, a little dodgy. <laughs> I bet it but doesn't look, look okay. It doesn't look like <laughs> my French Blu-ray. What I, what I, what I was amazed by was how much, how many of these movies are on YouTube. Yeah, it is, it is surprising, and then sometimes very good quality. Yeah, no, though I watched House of Bamboo on on YouTube, and it was, you know, I mean, it wasn't a Blu-ray, but it was, it was a high-res uh, file. Well, then, then, then the question is, how long are they going to be on Blu-ray? Yeah. <laughs> because I've had movies of mine show up on Blu-ray, and then you know you, you tell the distributor, and then all of a sudden it's not on Blu-ray anymore. I know. I on know. Two, uh, YouTube. The um, although I will say, I just checked because um, this will be a prime moment to mention our sponsor, Movies Unlimited, because you shouldn't be watching movies on YouTube, but they actually have a they have a DVD of uh, the the remake of M, which. Um, uh, worth worth looking into but uh uh yeah well antonio what's what what else what do you got what's next uh it's me deadly yeah. oh yeah which is yeah you know i mean it's interesting like it's interesting when when um when these movies get uh without realizing it kind of get like almost like art you know where they just get they kind of get really weird and out there uh and that movie gets really out there. And I feel like it's such a, it's, it's so, you know, when you see Lost Highway, it, that quotes that movie a lot, it totally yeah. makes sense. There's just kind of a nightmarish quality of Kiss Me Deadly that feels, it, it just, it doesn't, it feels like it's, you know, it's our, noir is already kind of not, 
necessarily just it's expressionistic and it's not real life. But then there, when it goes into something that's almost nightmarish, it it, it really sticks with you. Um, and I was it's trying also, to think about it's it. also a part horror movie. It's part science fiction movie. Yeah, exactly. It's really exactly. quite a amalgam. I I yeah I love that film beyond all reason. The um uh, I also want his answering machine. He's got an answering <laughs> machine in like nineteen what is it fifty one or something <laughs> fifty five. It's crazy. This big operation hanging on his wall. But, um, but it it uh, it is the best my camera movie for sure. And and it it always I always love. Um, I mean, do you know the story Antonio of the uh, the whole thing was that um, Aldrich. And I guess his writer, uh, uh, AI Bezaridis, uh, they hate my camera. <laughs> they oh, did right. not like the books and they think the character's a dick, basically. And I think the reason it's the only time anybody ever made a good my camera film, uh, all due respect to our friend Larry Cohen, because um, that was pretty fun, is they understand that he's just an asshole. Right. And and they're not trying to they're not trying to sell him to you, you know. <laughs> Which in a weird way, and then with Meeker playing the part, you're you're more than happy to go on that ride. But he's awful to everybody in that movie. When he squeezes Percy Helton's hand in the desk. Yes. <laughs> the look on his face. He's just having fun. That's hard to pull off. Um, I, I, I never enjoyed Steven Seagal because I feel like every movie he was in, he was just looking for an excuse to bully somebody. But I think the difference is uh, Steven Seagal didn't realize how unlikable he was, whereas <laughs> Ralph Meeker knows exactly how even unlikable. In real life, by <laughs> yeah, even in real life. <laughs> like as long as the authorial perspective gets it, I don't care how awful the character. Yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that movie's like I don't know. It's like being awake. Every time I see it, I just feel like I've been awake for three solid days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. And and uh, that grim ending. How did they get away with the ending, Joe? Well, it's it, there are various versions of the ending. Um, you know, in in one in the version that I saw first, um, the ending, the house blows up and everybody dies. Right. Uh, but, that's right. Oh, no, yeah, you're right. And then the actual... then then they then they discovered that that's not the real ending. The real ending is that they get away. At least they it's, they seem to get away, and they're in the but surf. But didn't the studio it, it actually mean they're not going to die? <laughs> didn't they put it out originally with just the house blowing up? Was it that the studio that did that? I'm I'm not quite sure what the, it's, it's so probably great. on Wikipedia or something, yeah. but I'm not quite sure what the provenance of that was. But I know that for years, people were saying that they had seen versions of the picture that, that other people hadn't seen, uh, and why all that was done, I don't know. Something to do with the CIA, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kick to Death had uh, I didn't realize that that because at the end of Kick to Death, I had forgotten that it that it has a happy ending uh but for a moment i just thought the kiss of death was what the the end was that he dies that he gets shot basically sacrifices himself so that so that to protect uh you know the his his new wife and his two daughters and i was like i and for a moment i thought that was the end i thought that's great like this is such a poetic ending this father sacrificing everything and then, and then, of course, you know, after getting shot like six times at close range by Richard Woodmark, <laughs> they like all of a sudden the voiceover comes in. That's uh, who is it, Colleen um, Gray? Gray, 
and she's like, I got it. We all got what we wanted. I mean, literally the voice of Earthian is oh, like, that's, 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 that should have been, that been the voice of Daryl Atlantic. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely But I love, I love, I mean, I love endings where they just, they just end on that, like, where it is just that grim, but it's so poetic and it's so satisfying. Like Murder by Contract has a great final shot, which is, um, just, you know, he gets, he gets cornered, he gets trapped in that tunnel. You know, he gets trapped in the tunnel trying to escape from, um, mm-hmm. from the hit that he can't go through. He can't go, he can't go through, through killing this woman. And uh, he's, on, he's escaping through the tunnel and then, you know, cops kind of uh, trap him either end and they smoke, they smoke him out. But like, he basically gets into a gunfight. And they just shoot him. And, and the last shot is his hand coming out of the tunnel covered in blood and just sliding down, you know, and then hitting the ground. And then it's the end. <laughs> and you're like, well, that's, <laughs> the end, that's right. what is that's the end. That's what's going to happen to that guy. He's fucked. Right. He didn't get his, he didn't get his, uh, his house. It's like working. Everything is like, he's working to buy this house for $28,000. It's like the whole thing, a house on the lake that he wants to buy in Ohio. We want to pause for just a minute to thank our sponsor, MoviesUnlimited.com, the movie collector's website. They're actually huge fans of our show, which we love because we love all of our listeners. And they feature pretty much every one of the movies we talk about here, except for the incredibly obscure ones that have never been released on video. So you can find them and add them to your collection. Sure, you can stream a lot of stuff these days, but when you buy your favorites, you watch what you want, when you want, and there's a ton of great content and bonus features like director's commentaries, deleted scenes, and all sorts of goodies that you don't get elsewhere. They're great. In fact, they're um, uh, when I was growing up in Philadelphia, we would get the Movies Unlimited uh, catalog because they're from Philly and they're still putting it out. It's this big, giant phone book-sized thing that has like every movie that's out on video. It's fantastic. So buy your favorites at MoviesUnlimited.com. You're going to find classics, imports, hard-to-find films, and, of course, tons of new releases. Seriously, they do imports. They do stuff with other regions. They're, they're great. It's a great resource. The prices are fantastic. The choices are endless. Own all the titles you love and enjoy all the bonus features that you just don't get elsewhere. So if you want to own your own experience, click the Movies Unlimited banner on, your, on our website and buy your favorites from hard-to-find films, imports, and more. Go now to MoviesUnlimited.com, the movie collector's website, where shipping is always free on orders over $50. So feel free to spend lots of money. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The thing I love about those sort of tack-on endings is you, you still know. It doesn't, it doesn't ruin the film the way a, like, 
a bad ending in a normal movie will will ruin the entire film. But in a film noir, I think you sort of knew that it was something that had been yeah. forced on them. And I think you, you, you know they all died. It, it was like it was like Hitchcock coming out at the end of his TV show and telling you that the, the, yes. that the guy really didn't get away with murder. That's right. Don't worry. <laughs> he got arrested the next day. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, I, I, so Antonio, you, you sort of, what's the time you had seen, like how much of this stuff sort of has, has impacted your work? Um, like going back, like, was it, cause I feel like that's there and all the stuff of yours I've seen. Yeah. I think I've, I've always, um, in some, some way noir kind of, it's, you know, it's funny. My friend, my, my, a good friend of mine, my old, my old partner, uh, this guy named Sean Durkin. Who we've had on the show. Oh, he was on the show? He was on the show. You name him, they've been on the show. Oh, amazing. John <laughs> and I, John and, and I were in film school together. And, um, and so we, a lot of our, you know, a lot of those moments that you have um, as a young filmmaker that kind of sort of define you, you know, that, that basically put these ideas in your head that the kind of movies you're going to make and the kind of, film language you want to use or whatever. Um, we had these moments together. Uh, Sean would see something and he'd call me up and you gotta come, you gotta come to the NYU library. We gotta watch this scene together. And, and I'd go and I, I'd watch, you know, I watched my first um, Hanukkah film with him. Um, he introduced me to a film called Code Unknown, which has subsequently become one of my favorite movies. And, and he just, he said, you gotta watch these two scenes. And we watched two scenes from that movie. And it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And it was, and it was, um, he was, it was, you know, when you, when, when you see a, a, a language or a grammar and you just kind of understand it, but you, but you don't, it's like, you, it speaks to you, but you want to, you don't know how to speak it yourself and you just got to learn that language. Mm-hmm. And so I had a lot of those moments with Sean. And so it's funny, like there's things that I've seen and, and, uh, and, and they, I forget them. Right. They're inside me. And that shot with, you know, with Widmark, I mean, that's not a shot I think about. I don't actively think about that shot all the time, but I know that the idea of that shot is in a lot of stuff. And I know that a lot of Fleming Killer, which is probably the most, you know, noirish movie that I made, which is all about, you know, Fleming Killer is about a, a, a young guy who goes to Europe to try and, you know, do that sort of post college postgraduate thing where you you're gonna just you know discover yourself traveling around Europe by yourself and uh he ends up getting uh involved with a prostitute and he convinces her to start scamming guys and they're gonna scam guys together and it's probably the most sort of noir plot that I've ever kind of written and but I but but the but all, all these movies, you know, I didn't watch all these movies before I, I went and shot it, but a lot of the, the feeling of them just made it into mm-hmm. it. In, it's just, it's, it's in me, that sound, the, the, those voices, uh, that rhythm, that pace, it's just kind of, it, it, just, it just makes sense to me in some weird way. And I also think that all these, you know, these, I find these movies pretty profound in a way, and they're sort of like, and there's there's so much existentialism in them in some weird way and i love that they do it you know but it but it but the, but there's no 
they're not putting on airs. You know what I mean? There's just, it's just very simple language and very kind of, kind of um, simple characters in a way, but there's something profound at play. And there's a real, like, you just feel like there's a worldview that these filmmakers are trying to communicate through these, these stories. Well, it's also really important that they, I'm trying to say it, it, it cannot come across that they're conscious of that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, Otherwise, I mean, otherwise... so much of Murder by Contract, I mean, you should rewatch it. So much of that script is just, but so much of it is just, is just Vince Edwards just giving his philosophy on life mm-hmm. <laughs> and his sort of like um, impatience with, with people that don't have this or aren't striving for perfection, who don't follow, like don't have any rules to live by, you know, and there's a real, there's a real artistry, there's a real artistry uh, to, to him. And there's one character that really recognizes it. And the other character, there's two kind of tension. They're (laughs) waiting for him. He's like, because they're like, okay, so you got to kill, you got to kill her because she's going to testify in 10 days. And he's like, no, 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 no. I take my time. I do this when I want to do it. And they're like, what do you want to do now? He's like, I just want to go to the movies. Let's go to the movies. And he just kind of does what he wants to do for the next eight days. And then he decides he's just kind of mulling it over. And there's just this kind of, you're like, that's just, I mean, that's, that's clearly there. There's an artist at play there. Yeah. You know? That's what he's talking about. Well, it's very much you like, you know, he must've had a kid and that kid grew up to be Tom Cruise and collateral. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. 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 Yeah. <laughs> the same, the same DNA. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, no, I love that stuff. Have you ever had the experience of, um, uh, going back, you know, and you're watching something like even for this, you're taking a look at, at one of these movies and then you suddenly realize that you have absorbed some film so much. You didn't even think about it, but Oh my God, I stole that shot. Or I, oh, yeah, that line. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. A lot of, I mean, yeah, I mean, um, I think that happens to all of us though. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. you, you, you don't, you're not consciously influenced by these things, but they right. are, they're in there and they are influences and they do come from the back of your head in a, in a creative situation where you have to accomplish something. And you may look back at it later and say, Oh, you know, I guess I did get that. I get that. I guess I got the idea from this shot and this yeah. thing, you know, but it's, it's, it's almost never something that you consciously want to duplicate. Yeah. 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 It's almost like if you're, if it, there's been times where I go, oh, this is kind of like if I'm, if I'm writing something and I'm thinking, oh, this is that shot, then I'm actively trying to figure out how not to do it that way. Right. But, it, you know, that because it feels, it feels like I'm, you know, I'm copying something. Whereas when it comes out organically, it feels like for whatever reason, yeah, like you said, Joe, it's like just, it just, there's something about this moment that your brain has now said, Oh, this is like this thing that you felt when you watched that. And so here's this, you know, idea that comes from that memory that you don't, you're unconscious of. Um, yeah. And then the other thing, yeah, cause I'm, I'm constantly sort of getting into the situation and, and realizing that the solution is to do that scene from that movie. But now that doesn't mean I've solved the problem. That means I've created yeah. a new one. It's like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. now I have to figure out how to do that scene from yeah. the movie without anybody yeah. ever knowing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's why it's always, it's always better to steal from obscure movies than. Oh, than no, this is my movie. song. I mean, it used to drive me crazy. Like, you know, don't, don't go to theaters as much as I used to the last couple of years. But, um, you know, you would go to these sort of repertory screenings of, you know, really interesting, obscure movies, even in L.A. And sometimes the, 
you know, there'd be eight other people in the audience. And you know, like half the time, I'm not, I'm not enjoying the movie either. I'm just looking for stuff to steal. Don't you, why yeah, are you yeah, not yeah. here? <laughs> yeah, why yeah, are exactly. you not here doing the exactly. same thing? Exactly. Exactly. That's why I loved, I mean, I mean, um, you know, I, the, it's sometimes these movies like the, these new are going back. It feel it felt like I was revisiting dreams or something. You yeah, know? yeah, very much. They yeah, feel very much like so. dreams. You know, they feel like oh right, and and uh, it's kind of where they live in, in in the back of your head. And I I always you know one of my favorite things to do, and I think it was it was really, and I I push uh, filmmakers, young filmmakers who I talk to do this all the time especially with, before you have big responsibilities like a family and kids and, you know, taking care of all this stuff and to go and just watch if there's a, if there's um, if there's a retrospective of, of a filmmaker that you don't really know, but you're interested in or a kind of genre, just go and watch as many of those movies as you can and just see what comes out after that, you know, because you're not so much of like, um, so much of what I love about that is you just kind of, you, you, if you see so many of a certain kind of movie or a filmmaker's movie in, in one time, you start, they all start to get, they start to blur. And then you just kind of absorbed a bunch of yes. that stuff. And then it comes out and you, and into something that that's interesting. And, um, and I, that's consistently been, that was the case for me so much when I was younger, I, I would go to these retrospectives and I, and I didn't realize it. And then also I didn't realize I was making a short film and, the short film was being was something that I that absorbed from all that all those movies that was coming out of the short yeah, film. It was like your response to them. It's yeah, funny you mentioned I, dreams because when we first started, I was like, I want to ask you up front. I thought, no, let me wait till we're done. Cause um I remember I was like in my twenties, the experience of a friend of mine gave me uh there was one of the giant hardcover collection of every issue of Vault of Horror, the old EC comics. I love I love EC. That, that's and, I grew up on EC comics. But it was like, yeah, it was one of those things where like I had, you know, you'd only heard of these things, you know? Yeah. And I was like, and I think I read them all. I mean, this is this massive collection of hundreds of incredible stories. I think I read them all in about four days. And my dreams for like a next month, every, every dream had a gruesome, horrifically ironic ending. <laughs> like I would always wake up in the morning going, good Lord, choke. Did, <laughs> did, <laughs> did, did like pounding down. Cause it sounds like a great way to do it. You're watching a little bit here, a little bit there. You're sort of like in, in prepping for this. Did sort of diving in deep into this stuff the last few days. Has it affected your thinking, your dreaming? Cause I know you're, you're finishing up the, the series, right? You're yeah, uh, like, are you sitting there going, wait, I need to, <laughs> can we get rid of the color? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, no, but that's really funny. So I did, there's a, a, it affected, I was doing the color timing on the last shot of the series. And there's a very stark um, contrast between light and the dark. And um, without realizing it, I pushed that much further than it was before. It was before it was very evenly kind of balanced and I had wanted to push it brighter. And then basically the character is sitting on the edge of a bed and to the right of him is a, is a, a his bedside uh, lamp. And then there's just, there's nothing lighting him on from the left side. And so, um, and, and sort of, I kept pushing it. And then I realized it was like, it was a noir image. I mean, it was, there was this like this perfect kind of split that made sense for the guy. And, mm -hmm. um, and I feel like it was 
yeah, I feel like I was just kind of like, oh, right. That's what this is. And that's what this moment needs is to lean into that. And, um, and so, yeah, in a way it did, it does, it, it did find its way into something. Ah, very, fantastic. Very much. We did it, Joe. We did yeah. it. We corrupted yeah. one of our guests work. Yeah. That's all that matters. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, uh, I do. And I can cut this if you want. I also just, we just watched the latest episode. I have, I have, I have one quibble. Sure, sure, sure. I'm, I'm, I have been uh, uh, pen palling with a woman I've never met before. I'm in prison. Uh, I have no idea what she looks like. She shows up and she's Juliet fucking Benoche. And I go, Hey, nice to meet you. <laughs> well, it's also Colin Firth, so there you go. Right, come on, <laughs> come on. <laughs> he does go, he does say, wow. Yeah, he says, right, okay. I'm really, it's like the only person worse than me. I'm sitting there and I'm like, am I, and my wife is just sitting there like, oh my gosh, he's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, every, every, I mean, the, the problem with Juliet in the edit room was you just kind of like wanted to, like you wanted all your shots to be a little longer. <laughs> that would be a little ridiculous. That you're like, every, that may account for her whole career. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but she is, I gotta say, I mean, I was very lucky to work with all the actors on this and they're all, they're all uh incredible it's an incredible cast yeah yeah but uh juliet is just uh, she's just like uh from another planet i don't I mean i don't know it's <laughs> kind of other very ethereal and she's so in the moment she's very she, she she can't really she doesn't want to do something unless it feels real and she's very aware of that so she's just constantly searching and playing she she's um yeah, she's just and and you and and it's so much like what makes those shots of her so um, I think uh, memorable and engaging and, and sort of mesmerizing is just stare at her, just look at her in the eyes, just look her in her eyes. There is so much going on. There's so there's such a depth there, and it's not like in every take. It's like she's just she's yeah. finding it, and then when you see it, it's just. You just don't want to look away from it, and uh, that's what. There's one shot at that. I think it's at the premiere where it's on her for a minute. Oh She's yeah, just overhearing people talk, yeah. and you're like, "It's all happening in there." It's all happening. Yeah. So the funniest <laughs> thing I'll tell you a story because so you know in the in the in the show she plays an editor, and uh, and uh, and my wife is uh, one of the editors on the show. She she edited the first episode. That she edited. Uh, my last two features. And, Wait, did uh, your wife fall in love with Julia Pinoche while editing the film? Yeah, yeah she left me. <laughs> now she's losing uh, These things happen, <laughs> folks. Uh, you know, she, but Juliet was like, I want to know what it's like to be an editor. I want uh, to watch you edit. And so we were living in Atlanta and my wife had her edit. You'll regret so that. would just edit. show up and she would be like sitting over her shoulder, like, what are you doing? Now? What are you doing? And Sophia, my wife, Sophia, was trying her best to just be cool. And then the fact that she was, she was like hanging out in her house and watching her do what she does and sort of be nonchalant about it. But, but she's just, yeah, she's a kind of actress that she wants to, if she's playing something, she wants to know exactly. She wants to know as much about that thing that the right. person does as she can. She, like, before, before our movie, she was, uh, she played a truck driver and she learned how to drive ah! an 18 wheeler. Of course she did. <laughs> oh, She's amazing. Um, well, something to fall back on, you know, with this. Yeah, no, that's wagon. the other thing. Is yeah, you get all these <laughs> skills. <laughs> now I want to see the Julia Binoche truck driving. Wait, is she a truck driving arm wrestler? Is this a remake of? Um, yeah, yeah, that would be great. Be amazing. 
Uh, well, Antonio, thank you so much, man. This this was a blast. Um, very psyched. I've, I've I wanted to just meet you and talk movies with you for a long time. And I, well, this I, is such a pleasure. Well, I, I hope we get to do it again. Yeah, and and do remember the main reason we had you on is um, you need to send us the episodes as soon as they're done, so we don't. Have to yeah, yeah, you Just tell just tell them the ending. I know how it ends, Joe. I saw that documentary. Great. Oh. Well, thank you, man. The, the show's on. The show's on HBO. How many? How many episodes are there total? Is it eight or ten? There's eight. There's eight, eight. Uh, and uh, the they they come out every Thursday. And every Thursday, and they're, and you're gonna come back in five years and do two more. Is that? That no. That, be. Uh, <laughs> the end. The end of the Fantastic. Thank you, man. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much, Joe. Thanks for the pleasure, Josh. Thanks. Awesome. Yes. Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the Movies That Made Me. Stay safe out there, folks. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.